Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news, and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray, and this week's show is brought to you by Red Canary, the MDR company. And Red Canary's Director of Product Management, Adam Mashinshi, joins us this week uh, to talk about what's happening to security teams right now in the wake of mass layoffs in tech, which sadly are a thing. That is coming up later, but first up, of course, it's time for a check of the week's security news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, we're going to start off with some good old-fashioned chaos, uh, some stuff being burned down at the moment. And uh, yeah, it is a bad time to have VMware ESXi servers in your environment if they're unpatched, because someone has... You you know, started exploiting a two-year-old bug and, uh, you know, they're burning down a lot of stuff with it. And I, you know, that's, that's kind of depressing. I'm going to admit that's kind of depressing. Yes, it certainly is. Uh, I mean, this bug is kind of, you know, it's a pretty run-of-the-mill, uh, like, memory corruption flaw. It's a little fiddly. And, you know, the exploit has to work quite hard to get past. There is actually exploit mitigation tech for once uh, in an embedded system. Uh, it sounds like um, French hosting company OVH had a bunch of VMware ESXi on the internet with its management plan exposed. And that seems to be where, you know, some of the numbers we've seen reported are like 2,000 uh, virtual machine hosts compromised uh, by this thing it seems like probably quite a bunch of them are at ovh and the french cert were one of the you know early people blowing the whistle about uh, this particular campaign so yeah not a great time to be a vmware based hosting provider with uh, your hypervisors on the internet and um you know i'm sure uh, we will see people well if you haven't patched your hypervisors two years after a bug probably you're not going to patch it now and you're probably already compromised but you know maybe we'll see some people you know tidy up that part of the house but it is hard you know it's hard patching hypervisors especially if you're not set up for live migration or regular downtime windows or or that kind of thing so some sympathy there but well, come but, on but, really. i mean it's necessary okay i get that it's hard but it's also necessary like it's it not is. something you I can't agree. not do and this is why so i've got limited sympathy for the people who are saying it's hard i mean you know i'd have more sympathy if it was a three to six month old bug, but two years, I mean, yeah. you know, and I even saw like Kevin Beaumont was on uh, uh, Mastodon saying, well, you know, sometimes they, when VMware releases an update, it, you know, there might be hardware compatibility issues and people can't apply the patch, but you know, that still means you've got a problem that you've got to address, right? Like whether that's upgrading hardware or deprecating those servers, uh, you know, services, you just, you can't just roll with this internet exposed unpatched for two years. I'm sorry. <laughs> like that's, I that's agree. bad. I agree. And at the very least, some firewalling, because I mean, this is um, a, a bug was in a, a network service on port like 427, uh, 427 TCP and UDP. So like just firewalling your hypervisors off from the internet, not a particularly high bar to reach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I did want to note is that uh, this bug is also potentially use, uh, usable locally as a like um, VMware guest to host. Yeah. Uh, so depending on the network configuration, it's plausible to reach the service from a VM. So even if you weren't internet facing, you could own some rubbish PHP app hosted in a <clears throat> you know Apache on a VM, and then yeah, you know, and through then from there, yeah, up into the hypervisor. So that's you know for pen testers and the like, perhaps is an interesting use case for this bug. Uh, well, there'd so, be a lot more of that accessible. Like if you've got shell on some VM, I mean, you know, that's going to yes. be an easier path, right? And it's going to yes. get you into more interesting places, and it's also yes. going to get you into places where people say, "Ha ha, I fire." walled off the management interface i'm fine so i don't need to patch it <laughs> yes well, well yeah exactly right so yeah. like i don't think we'll see you know criminals doing that but yeah if you're a pen tester that seems like a pretty sweet thing especially if you can go up into the hypervisor and at that point 
uh, you can VLAN tag into other parts of the environment and circumvent firewall controls or, or whatever else. So that sounds like fun. Now, one thing, look, I know they're a sponsor, but one thing where Rumble can be very, well, it's not called Rumble anymore. It's called Run Zero, but one area where Run Zero is uh, very useful. And yes, full disclaimer, they're a sponsor and, uh, you know, technically I'm an advisor to Run Zero, but Run Zero is really good if you want to find the stuff in your environment, all right? Just putting that out there so you can grab a trial version and just go take it for a hoon. That's one of the primary use cases for it. It's very good for doing that. Yeah, like knowing that you have this, that there is an ancient VMware box lying around somewhere, that's super useful info. Yeah, yeah, especially uh, right now. And uh, look, you know, you might also want to take a peek and see if you can find any Go Anywhere MFT servers, which sounds like kind of an Excelion-style file transfer appliance. Is that about right? Like someone is exploiting a bug in these things and uh, yeah, it's um, it's a it's a bad time apparently. Yeah, you're right. It's it's an Excelian style managed file transfer solution thingy. It actually is a like a thing that was common on like IBM platforms in the old days. It's actually now owned by uh, the same people who own Cobalt Strike, funnily enough, and Core Impact and Tripwire and a bunch of other security products. So a little bit orcs uh, to then have. Uh, security bugs uh, in that as well but yeah if you have this in your environment and I've, the only places i've seen it have been in financial services and banking that have come from you know ibm uh, mid-range sort of legacy yeah, if you have it around then definitely go go have a look make sure you're patched up to date yeah so it's not really clear what the attackers are trying to do with those ones you know i asked Catalan kimpani this morning i said you know is that ransomware is it crypto miners what and he's like well we just don't know yet um, at this point, it looks like the VMware ESXi one, that is a ransomware thing. So they're dropping yes. ransomware and saying, give us 50,000 in Bitcoin. Um, but these go anywhere MFT things, like uh, we, we just don't know yet. It was interesting though, in the, you know, when all of those Excelion attacks were happening, it didn't really turn into such a ransomware thing. It was much more a, you know, people collecting stuff and sending it to DDoS secrets and intelligence agencies scooping it up and financial crime, people collecting data and that sort of thing. And, and data ransom, we saw a lot of that. Uh, with Excel, yeah, but yeah. not ransomware. Yeah, and I think you know, given the nature of this type of system, in you know, probably being financial services, you know, the potential for ransoming the data perhaps is interesting. There's also potential for you know denial of service or, or you know whatever else. So we'll you know, be interested to see if we do get any reporting about it actually being used for anything concrete. But yeah, file transfer servers are just a great target regardless of uh, you know who's they are and what they do. But they tend to be ephemeral though, right? Which makes them maybe not such a great ransomware target because someone locks up your means to transfer files i mean that's okay you got the files somewhere else you were just using the service to transfer them yes hopefully although you know depending on what the retention looks like or yeah. you know what the nature of the data is you know if it's you know transactional information or credit card data or whatever else that could be bad uh, even if it is transient but i mean that's from a from a ransom perspective yes. like you know yeah. data ransom not so much ransomware that's all i mean you know you're not yes. going to have much of an operational impact is all i'm getting at now, yes, speaking agree. of data ransoms, Royal Mail, uh, you know, Lockbit has come out and confirmed, yep, it was us who did the Royal Mail uh, ransomware job and they're now threatening uh, to, you know, data extortion. They've listed them on their leak site, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, I can't imagine if they didn't pay to get keys to decrypt, I can't imagine they're going to pay to keep their data private. Like that just ain't happening. No, I would imagine not. And this far into the process, a lock better saying they're planning to publish uh, February the 9th, so tomorrow at the time of recording uh, for us. So, yeah, I think that that window to pay probably has, you know, run pretty tight. And I don't think we're going to see that. Uh, we don't know exactly what data, you know, they may actually drop and, and what the impact of that will be. But, yeah, this whole Royal Mail saga has not been pretty. No, it hasn't. And meanwhile, Ion Group, which is a uh, financial trading services group, it got ransomware. I think that was last week. And 
uh, you know, that was another lock bit one. Apparently this disrupted derivatives trading and, you know, their customers are like major banks. A lot of the banks that uh, were impacted by this were based in Europe, but I believe there were a couple in the United States as well. Just all around a really bad time for them. And it looks like, according to Lockbit at least, and I do believe them, uh, they paid. Yes, they didn't say exactly who paid, but yeah, Lockbit has removed them from the, you know, their like trophy blog. And that usually happens when someone has agreed to pay. And yeah, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that. You know, we don't want to give them, you know, give them money and reward them for doing this kind of thing. But but we know, also don't impact. want a global, you know, financial meltdown because of a ransomware attack. <laughs> well, right? exactly, right. And yeah, I don't know. I, we don't know any, any inside gossip here, but... I, uh, Why I mean, do we I'm have sh- bread lines now, Daddy? Oh, because someone didn't <laughs> pay a ransom, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want, I don't want to see them get paid, but maybe sometimes it's just the, you know, the right thing to do. I'm not sure. Look, it's always going to be case by case, right? Like, yeah. and, and whether or not that's because people make calculations about, you know, their stock price or their bonuses, you know, or some bad reasons versus, oh my God, the impact from this is going to be incredibly severe. You know, you just don't know. And, no, and it's, it's impossible to say, uh, you know, people keep asking that question, right? And occasionally I get asked this by journalists who might be writing a cybersecurity story and they'll, they'll contact me and they say, you know, do you think people should pay uh, ransoms? And I think it really depends. I think on balance, no, but just sometimes, I, I think when it comes to data extortion, no. But I think when it comes to mitigating operational impact, sometimes people are still going to just have to pay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's as you say, like case by case, we don't know the specific details. There may be reasons why, you know, that it's just the you know, the, the best overall best of the worst situ- of a bad situation, you know? Yeah. Meanwhile, a 166-year-old engineering firm in the United Kingdom uh, called Morgan Advanced Materials, like it's it's publicly traded. Its share price tanked 7.5% because it got ransomware and they're dealing with a tough situation over there. Yes. Uh, they are involved in um, semiconductor manufacturing, I think. They sell equipment well, for it's not like we have any shortage of them at the moment, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's know, fine, right? That's, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So definitely concerning to see, you know, issues in that particular industry. Uh, there was also reports of a, like, a ceramics firm that makes specific ceramics uh, used in steel manufacturing called uh, Vesuvius, uh, also ransomware, uh, also, you know, big in British industry. So, yeah, bad times. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just, uh, there's a lot of ransomware news this week and you know we're not going to talk about all of it obviously but it's still just you know on and on it rolls it's we've become desensitized to the crisis (laughs) uh but what do we got Uh. here k12 schools in tucson and nantucket uh have been responding to quote-unquote cyber attacks i mean you know nine times out of ten now when you see details of an incident it's ransomware Um, We got a report here from Alexander Martin at the record that said a ransomware gang uh, is attempting to extort a a school in the UK uh, by posting files about at-risk children. And that's Vice Society crew uh, doing that. I mean... You know, they just plumb new depths, these guys. They do, they? they really do, yeah. And that, that's, that's just, you know, really, that's how you want to make your living by, by you know, <laughs> making the lives of, of children difficult. Like, just f*** off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, they're really, truly horrible people. We've got a Tallahassee hospital diverting patients and cancelling elective surgery. Uh, Switzerland's largest university has had some sort of incident. You know, on and on and on it goes. And, and, and I mean... We're going to talk uh, now about a uh, about a law enforcement operation targeting an encrypted encrypted messaging uh, service and platform, 
And it feels like the police globally these days, you know, have, have a bit of a template for, you know, when there's a crime service, like uh, one of these, uh, you know, crime phones, right? They've got, they've got a template now, which is they infiltrate it. Either that's through hacking or it's through uh, coercive measures when they track down the administrators and say, hey, you know, we're going to flip you or you're going to go to prison and they, and they cooperate. You know, there is a template now. And we, we've got the, the Dutch cops here have taken over a... Um, uh, a messaging service called Xclue, which was very popular with uh, with criminals, and you know read everyone's messages for five months. Joe Cox has the story for Vice, but I really hope that you know since we saw the the Hive takedown, uh, that we can expect this sort of law enforcement action also to develop into a template that we see applied over and over again. So I'm really hoping sometime in the next three months we see something spectacular pop off against Lockbit because that would be just delightful. Anyway, let's talk about this exclude thing, Adam. What do we know? Uh, so it's a you know another one of these you know crime focused phone systems something like three thousand users uh, a significant amount of which were Dutch speakers um, they've you know, as you said uh, rolled up got in somehow helped themselves to messages identified a bunch of people uh, arrested some of the administrators and users and of course you know anytime that they've got this kind of wealth of information you get from being inside uh, a crime phone solution then you know there's a lot of leads to follow up and I'm sure we'll see them you know uh, over time picking people up using the evidence uh, that they've collected through these systems. Um, there's some um, some reporting that there's like lawyers that were using it uh, in Holland and they can apply to the Dutch authorities uh, to have, you know, privileged information uh, that they were using their crime phones for deleted maybe uh, well i mean I if they were nice. if they were having conversations with their clients who were targets of investigations i mean that's perfectly reasonable yes so at least that's a thing that uh, you know is happening at all um but yeah i guess the you know the overall goal much like we saw with darknet markets right, and you know some of the ransomware takedowns really is to just reduce trust in this ecosystem like you know if you're going to buy a crime phone you have to trust the people who are selling it to you and if we see a ongoing pattern of these systems either being compromised or straight up operated by law enforcement, as we saw with um, the one that the Australians were involved in. Um, you Anom. Know, sub- God, that was yes, tasty. The, the, <laughs> Anom, yes, that's, that's the one I was trying to remember. Um, then, you know, you want to get to a point where, you know, you just can't trust any of those services. Uh, and, you know, similarly with, you know, v, you know, VPNs and so on, you know, are they federal, are they fed fronts? Are they cops? You know, and you know, that just creates friction uh, and hurts the overall crime ecosystem, which, you know, is what we want. It's so funny, like the VPN marketing slogans about how they never log and everything. It sort of reminds me of like, you remember when you dial into a BBS and it'd say like, if you're a cop, you got to disconnect now. <laughs> you know, it's that sort of magical thinking, right? Yeah, like, yeah. It's just... like... Um... Sovereign citizens, I do not consent yeah, to being arrested. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you remember when, uh, what was the company? Gamma Group. What was their product yes. called? Finspy? Was it Finspy? Uh, yeah, fin, Finspy, Finfisher. Yeah. Finfisher, yeah. Uh, fin. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what it was. But uh, I remember when they got owned and all of their support tickets got released, it just reminded me, talking about this just reminded me of it. Um, obviously, you know, the media dove in, Australian media dove in to see. It turned out like a few of our police forces were customers and... The coolest thing was they found support tickets from the New South Wales Police. That's the state that I live in. And these tickets that they'd lodged with Gamma Group were asking them for guidance on how to better exclude um, communications from solicitors to their targets. They wanted that automatically dropped, you know, just to simplify their lives so that, that it wouldn't hurt them in court later. And it was, it's just really funny that like when some of these act, and, and of course, you know, a lot of bad stuff was revealed 
uh, in these in these uh, dumps. But it's also quite reassuring when you see when you get a look into the oper- the way your police force is operating, and you're like, "Wow, you're acting really responsibly and appropriately." That's weird. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, sad that we we're like, mm, that's weird. How unusual. <laughs> but yeah, also, you know, the mundanity of that is is weirdly reassuring. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. It's like, oh, well, we don't want to accidentally intercept someone's communications with their lawyers. And <laughs> it's like, well, great. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yes, Keep not doing that, you know? Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, meanwhile, and look, I didn't see this put together until now, but Alexander Martin is reporting for the record um, that a former Lizard Squad hacker, uh, Z-Kill, uh, whose whose real name is Julius uh, Kivimaki, I think. Uh, not quite sure how you uh, pronounce that. Um, but he's the one who's been arrested in France. So the, the warrant for this guy came out a while ago. He's wanted for hacking into that... Um, a psychiatric facility in Finland or the clinic and, uh, you know, trying to extort patients, you know, really, really, really horrible stuff. We did report on the warrant for him being issued a few months ago, but I didn't realize it was actually the lizard squad guy, right? Zekel. So he's now been arrested by cops in France and it looks like he's going to get extradited to fin- extradited to Finland to face charges on this. Uh, he does deny the charges, but uh, yeah, they certainly think they have the guy. Yes, and I think, you know, given that, you know, that particular story did have a lot of impact in Finland, you know, we were talking 20,000 individuals having their, you know, therapy records individually ransomed, like it made a bunch of impact there. So, uh, you know, I'm, I imagine the, the Finnish cops have done their legwork and, you know, they're obviously going to try and uh, make sure this, this guy gets some justice if indeed he is responsible for it. But he'd been done for what, like, a whole bunch of of computer crimes in the Lizard Squad time frame when he was underage. Yeah, he was uh, convicted of. It's right there in the lead. Fifty thousand counts of computer crime. <laughs> <laughs> I think that what like one for every sin packet or something like that. It yeah, reminds me of that, how they know, worked that out. Firewall, firewall drop logs. That's stats. a lot of computer crimes. <laughs> That's He's a lot busy. of computer crimes. So yeah, yeah. So anyway, good to see him uh, picked up. I, you know, I, I imagine the wheels of Finnish justice will will turn, and then he'll be you know remanded to a you know, high security Finnish prison where he will, you know, eat cake and do yoga or something. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, let's just see what happens with that uh, early stage here. But, uh, you know, certainly the the cops think they got the right guy, even if uh, he is denying it. Meanwhile, in New York, and this is a story from James Reddick, again, at the record, uh, the New York Attorney General has ordered a businessman behind uh, some spyware, so sort of like spouseware stuff. Uh, they've ordered him to pay a $410,000 fine and to amend his business practices. And the reason for the fine is interesting. He's being fined for misleading his customers into believing that the software he was selling could be lawfully used to spy on a spouse, right? So that's that's what makes up the fine. Um, further to that, uh, they have to change the software so that it alerts everyone whose you know device it's on. Hey, this spyware is on this uh, is on this device. So a lot of people will get that pop up uh, alerting them to the fact that their spouse is probably spying on them. That's the most common use case for this sort of stuff, anyway. Yeah, and like this company had a bunch of different products, all basically doing the same thing and you know, making up fake reviews to say that it was great at doing crimes and 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 so on, or great at spying on people and then claiming it wasn't a crime, etc. You know, I feel like, 
getting them on 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 advertising grounds is is a funny way to approach it but you know if it gets the job done and as you say a bunch of people will get pop-ups uh, it's not stupid if it works and they got it, al capone yes. on tax evasion yeah, for yes uh, exactly cares, right? that's that was exactly the thought that was going going through my head so you're like all's well that ends well uh, and i think you know hopefully it will yeah, yeah. I wonder if the... I, I mean, I'm guessing that the requirement to inform owners of targeted devices that the app is active on their phone, I'm guessing that's a you know long-term requirement. So that just kills their business, basically. If they're yes. required to just, you know, every time you infect a device, <clears throat> you know, it's got to pop up every hour and say, hey, <laughs> someone's spying way, on you. Spy- you know? <laughs> yeah, that should kill the products pretty much dead and, and the business. And, you know, that'll be, you know, one less cockroach on the internet. Yeah, that's right. And it's an interesting way to skin the cat, right? Which is to say, yeah. well, the software is not illegal, but, you know, if it does this, which is to notify someone that, that it's running. So that seems a great way to sort of uh, kill it. Now, Charlie Hebdo, the satirical French magazine that, of course, was the target of a, uh, of a shooting some years ago, uh, it's been hacked uh, by a hacktivist group, Adam, which is very <laughs> upset that uh, it was running yet another satirical cartoon contest asking people to depict uh, some senior Iranian leader in a funny light. So these hacktivists uh, did not like this and, uh, you know, hacked into Charlie Hebdo and uh, stole uh, information on 230,000 of its customers and is ransoming it and, you know, leaking stuff. Turns out, surprise, surprise, that hacktivist group was actually a front for the Iranian government, according to Microsoft, at least. Yes, Microsoft uh, have looked into some of the, you know, technical TTPs and, you know, some of the other aspects of it and have concluded that, yes, it does, in fact, look like uh, Iranian government uh, directed or sponsored attackers pretending to be hacktivists to suppress freedom of speech, which, you know, that's that's a thing we've certainly seen happen before. I mean, uh, you brought up when we were talking earlier, uh, North Korea versus Sony Pictures, uh, pretty similar sort of, uh, sort of MO, uh, although a little less flashy this time. Yeah, I mean, I, I just find this one interesting because I've been reflecting a lot lately on the way the world is in terms of there being a liberal block and an illiberal block, right? And this just isn't something I could see, you know, a Western nation doing, right? Which is, uh, you know, a sort of hacking campaign around pride, right? You just don't sort of see that same you know, the deployment of state resources over stuff like this. And I think it's just one of those cases where you see a cyber incident that kind of reveals something a bit bigger. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, I was listening to uh, Grak and, and Tom on uh, the Between Two Nerds podcast uh, earlier on in the week, you know, talking about the thresholds for having states direct, you know, uh, companies and entities, you know, in their in their fold to act in the national interest. And I thought there were some interesting parallels, you know, mm. from that. And, you know, they were, Grak and Tom were talking about, um, you know, how it's an advantage in peacetime to not have your government interfering with the organizations and having them, you know, having Google give up people's email or Microsoft, whoever else. But in wartime, perhaps there is an advantage to it. And, you know, doing it just to save face um, or to, you know, deal with, you know, insults to your leader or your, you know, religious ideas or whatever else, you know, seems even further off that, uh, you know, off that that cliff that, uh, that yeah. we're talking about. I mean, some might say it was cruel of me to name that podcast Between Two Nerds. But as a listener, Adam, I'm <laughs> sure you'd agree yes. that it's yeah, yeah. entirely appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, love listening to Tom and the Grok weekly on Risky Business News on Tuesdays. Yes. Check it out. <laughs> but I guess this is the point where you sort of see a, a, a 
culture clash in a way. Uh, you know, less about the culture of the everyday person on the street, but a, a culture clash in terms of like governance culture, right? Yes, and and the extent to which you know you can use those sorts of tools of I mean they're not even statecraft right I mean the, the cybers and whatever other things you've got available to you you know just for reasons of of pride or a difference in in values or interests or whatever it is. And it is the illiberal bloc that does this sort of stuff, right? So we've seen it from North Korea. We've seen it from Iran. We've seen it with uh, uh, Russia attacking, like, the Olympics and things like that. So you just sort of think, wow, this is really an area where it's the, the distinction is, is, is pretty clear, you know? Um, yes, I'm sure yeah, the agreed. West do plenty of dumb stuff, but it's just not the same. <laughs> <laughs> or if they do, at least it's dumb stuff with better OPSEC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, John Greek at the record has this one up here. Apparently some North Koreans uh, described as Lazarus in this piece have been going after like an Indian medical research company and some energy sector businesses. Apparently this is intelligence gatherings, so it's not like financial fraud that we're used to seeing from uh, you know North <laughs> Korean crews. But yeah, just a, he's got a bit of a write-up here on some North Korean intelligence gathering activity. Yes, uh, amusingly enough, called no pineapple apparently after an error message that they found in one of the pieces of you know of malware of tools that were involved in this. Uh, same crew had been seen targeting some uh, Indian nuclear energy related stuff as well. So I mean, I guess medical and and you know power nuclear is probably an intelligence gathering target, but also plenty of compute if you want to mine some cryptocurrency. Yeah, so, you know they didn't do that yet. You never but, know; you know, they might drop just, some. Just helping. Doge miners or something. Yeah, yeah, do, exactly. do you even yeah. mine Doge? I don't think you do. I don't know. <laughs> you collect it in small green baggies after it comes out of the Doge. <laughs> now, uh, Tom Brewster at Forbes has reported that Jigsaw, the unit of Google that assists sort of civil society and journalists in some places to withstand things like DDoS attacks and, you know, a uh, really cool idea, Jigsaw. It's had its workforce cut from 50 to 30, so it's operating on a bit of a skeleton crew. So that's just, uh, you know, one of those signs of the times, right, where Google is cutting back on some of its good deeds. Yeah, it's kind of a pity, you know, given uh, you know Google does have such a lot of money and such a lot of uh, influence in the internet, you know, to see them scaling back some of these, you know, more altruistic, less money-making enterprises. Uh, this group worked on things like, you know, VPNs for censorship circumvention, uh, the anti-DDoS uh, protection that you talked about, uh, you know, as well as some work on, you know, managing toxic content and, you know, a bunch of things that are kind of necessary and Google's in a great position to address. But yeah, as you say, you know, if they uh, you know, have to cut things that don't make them money, then yeah, that's uh, tough for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, the story basically says that they're down to essentially a skeleton crew. And I love some of the anonymous quotes uh, from the people who've been laid off in this piece. You know, one former staffer said, told Tom, apparently, and here's the quote, apparently if you're not making stupid generative AI, you're useless. <laughs> so, yeah, oh dear. bit unfortunate yeah. there. But you never know. I mean, they've built a bunch of tools. You know, perhaps they can maintain them with a smaller staff. I don't know, man. I think it yeah. just makes the work of the remaining 30 people much more important. Yes, and so, you know, good luck to those of you who are still there on the Jigsaw team. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, the support will come back uh, as time moves on. 
Now we've got some more news in the whole Ubiquity saga, Adam. This is when uh, Ubiquity uh, had a security incident and an insider got in touch with uh, Brian Krebs and provided him with a bunch of information uh, that it turns out he actually fabricated. This insider fabricated this information about how dire uh, this breach was and had actually done the breach himself. Uh, so Brian wrote up a story, which, you know, if you read it, it was entirely accurate. He said, a senior staffer at Ubiquity has told me X. And that's exactly what happened. He did all of the legwork to verify this guy was who he said he was. But yeah, there was no way for him to know that this guy was actually the one doing the breach. You know, and he wrote, the company has denied it and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, this guy eventually went down. You know, I think Ubiquity took Brian to, to court uh, for defamation. I think it was all settled. I mean, if you if you kind of just look at what the most likely outcome was there, you know, eventually Brian's story disappeared and there was a, you know, sorry ubiquity post that went up that everyone kind of ignored. And that's, you know, that's the usual sort of outcome in a situation like this. Um, but yeah, Nicholas Sharp, 37 years old. He was a senior software engineer at Ubiquity. He has now pleaded guilty to a whole bunch of stuff and he will be sentenced in May. Yeah, like he had walked a whole bunch of data out and then pretended that it had been hacked and that he was going to ransom it back. And yeah, not particularly a great crime. Uh, he was ultimately snapped when uh, he had an internet outage at his house and his VPN that he was using to, you know, to hide himself or obscure where he was coming from uh, dropped out whilst he was in the middle of like Git cloning something. And then it went across the clear internet instead of across his VPN and subsequently got picked up. So bit of an OPSEC fail there. Good reminder to everybody to, uh, you know, separate your VPN endpoint from the machine you're actually doing your hacking on so that in the event that your VPN stops working, you fail closed instead of open to the internet. Crime the will tips. Catch you. Crime tips Crime. with Adam Boileau. Or you can even use a hardware <laughs> device or a hardware device use or, a hardware yeah. device that will not route in the clear you know yes exactly so you know try and keep that in mind that's, if you're doing that's crimes. my crime tip you know yes. a little bit different to yours, <laughs> but yes so yeah that did not work out particularly well uh, one other tidbit we heard is that at some point he had his lawyer uh, whilst they were going through this legal process had filed a you know some motion uh, that he be allowed to get a uh, ask the court for permission to get a job during this proceedings uh, and apparently he'd been offered a job at uh, Atlassian. Yeah, so, so Atlassian, of course, an Australian company. Uh, big shout out to the HR manager who didn't Google him. Yes. <laughs> it's not actually clear if he ended up getting the job. Like they said that he had, they had been offered a job. I'm not sure whether he subsequently took it. I think the lawyer said that, that Atlassian may not have been made aware of his uh, ongoing indictment and uh, the nature of the crime that he was being prosecuted for. So, yeah, mm, bit orcs. Proofpoint has some research out, Adam, about attackers. Uh, and, you know, Ryan Callenberg was in Risky Business News talking about this the other day. And I, I think I got an interview with him coming up soon for a sponsor slot. So I'm sure we're going to talk about this. But, yeah, uh, attackers abusing the verified publisher tag to do consent phishing um, in the sort of 365 world, right? Yeah, and I think we had talked about this. I, I, I think last year sometime where the, the the screen that pops up when you're asking you know for OAuth consent to auth to an app uh, in your like, Office 365 ecosystem, there's like a blue tick that says it's a verified publisher and it kind of reassures you that the application is legit, but the process of actually getting that blue tick doesn't necessarily involve particularly much. It's a verification, verification of the identity of the publishing account and not a 
you know, any verification of the legitimacy of the actual software or the or whatever else it is. Microsoft's own guidance does say to look for this particular blue tick, but it doesn't mean so it's it's, a, it's about as solid a mark of legitimacy as a let's encrypt certificate right uh, it, yes exactly right it's, it's very much the same sort of thing same problem that we have with ssl certs you know where it doesn't really say anything about the content uh you know we talked about it as a kind of you know research theoretical thing uh last year sometime so yeah uh, proof point seeing it uh, being used in the wild i guess is you know justification that we were right back then and people are using it yeah, and uh, there's another thing that's been going on too. I don't actually have it in the run sheet this week, but have you seen the news about all of the OneNote phishing that's yes. going on? Like yes, that, that's interesting. That's come out of nowhere and it's become really, really a popular technique. And this, is of, of course, comes after Microsoft has made some changes to like macro content when files have mark of the web. And I think they're also ditching like Excel sheets for embeds in some Office files. So they're closing down some other stuff. So the, you know, the bad guys are rushing to some different techniques. And this is firming up as a favorite yes i mean one note is pretty widely used in enterprise environments and of course the you know all of the complexity of microsoft's office software you know across 365 and, and the older like desktop ones like there is a lot in there and people used excel you know or word doc embeds or whatever else because they worked right and now that microsoft's taken those away you know, people are just going to start looking for the same bug somewhere else or similar or related. So we will see this kind of carry on, uh, you know, until, you know, people get, get bored and find another way to fish people for yeah, code exec yeah. or I mean, I the other some, controls. I saw know, some pretty up. interesting, like, multi-stage DocuSign yes. uh, phishing happening as well. That That's kind of cool. But, I mean, you know, I didn't pull it out explicitly for, for discussion in this week's show because, like, you know, it's just one of yet another, you know, 50 new yes, techniques. Exactly. But it, it does seem like the DocuSign ones are done pretty well, which is like, yeah, you got to click through, click here, click here. You know, and eventually it gets you to a point where you got to, you know, pump in some creds. Yeah, I mean, the OneNote one seems to have less requirement for user interaction than some of the ones we've seen, which I think is one of the reasons that's been picked up uh, pretty quickly by attackers. And of course, this stuff spreads much quicker than perhaps it, you know, 10 years ago, bypassing a control, like when Mark of the Web came in, for example, it kind of took a while before people learned the ways to get around that and what it meant. And indeed, you know, Mark of the Web was such a sort of vague control early on, whereas now when they introduce a new control, um, it you know, the ways or the workarounds or the alternatives come past much, much quicker than they were five, ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. And we've got a funny one here from the record. Uh, a billboard, an electronic billboard in Moscow was apparently spruiking a darknet drug platform called Blacksprut. Uh, and it had the tagline on it, come to me if you're looking for the best. And it's a woman in a, you know, some sort of weird futuristic pandemic mask you know, it looks kind of like a Tron Tron BDSM robot or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like no one's really sure if they just bought the space and no one checked or if someone hacked the billboard or like no one really knows how it got there, but it's there. Yeah, and I mean, you just got to kind of laugh at the weird future that we're in where, yeah, straight up internet. And the funny thing is that we call it a darknet drug market, but this is actually on the clear web. Like you don't even have to tour to get there because presumably it's serious? in I did, I did not know that. Well, yeah, it has a it has a, a public a public side entry point. So uh, apparently, tied up, they use uh, one of the like uh, cryptocurrency exchanges that just recently got sanctioned as their like primary payment provider. So I don't know, Russia is a you know cyberpunk future you know <laughs> crime haven now, I guess. So or yeah. is, has been for some time, perhaps. Finally, Adam, this story was is is a funny one, right? Because I was editing the script for uh, risky the risky business news podcast this morning and. 
I was asking Catalan about this. I'm like, was this guy doing a red team exercise? Was he doing a bug bounty? Like, it's really not clear why this guy happened to be hacking Toyota. And that's what the story is about, which is he got into some one of, you know, Toyota's uh, custom apps that it uses globally and just started messing around with it and found all of these awful bugs. And the, you know, the piece mentions that he wasn't paid a bounty uh, and then you click through to the guy's blog and he's like, yeah, I was just looking for some stuff that I could write about. And it's like, okay, cool, cool. Right. We can do that now. Like it's, it, <laughs> to me, it was just such a sign of the times piece that it, it appears uh, that this guy just gave Toyota a free security audit, right. And um, passed the findings to them. Apparently they were great. You know, they, they fixed it all pretty quick and said, thanks. But what a sign of the times when you can just go out and do this and you don't get in trouble anymore. <laughs> I know, exactly. Like that's what I thought as well. It's like we were always raised and, and I have certainly you know, attempted to raise all of my my crew of hackers. You Not know, that, to do this. <laughs> that we obey the scope, right? We have to be authorised and have consent <laughs> and that someone has to approve what we're doing and the person who approves it has to be a person who can actually give us approval. Like you can't hack a cloud service provider just because one of its customers says that it's fine with them and so on and so forth but yeah that i guess we just don't do that anymore like now you just pretend you've got whatever bug bounty terms and conditions you imagine you have and then you just hope not to get arrested which i mean i guess i guess it works you but know, anyway, anyway a free t-shirt. tell us about the bug here because it's yeah, actually sorry. kind of it's a, it's a fun time <laughs> it's a funny bug but i, I, I so, guess just the thing yeah i mean for all i know they have some sort of open scope research thing like the story doesn't mention it anyway that that, that yeah. part of it's weird but let's talk about what he actually did yeah so this is uh, toyota's global supplier preparation information management system which is a web-based app uh, that they use for managing suppliers uh, this was like a, a angular like single page client-side javascript application and it turns out that essentially the security controls were client-side uh, and you uh -oh. could just uh, you know find the api endpoints that the angular you know javascript client used and just log yourself in like you didn't need a password you didn't you just called the like hey i'm the user steve i'm an admin thanks very much job done uh, which i wish i could say that was unusual um, but yeah i mean good, good times easy hacking um you know i probably deserved a bounty for it if, if there was a bounty program uh, but yeah this the sort of comedy comedy um thick client bugs that we've all come to expect. I mean, yeah. I remember one app we looked at that had a like, login, uh, literally a function called login as super user without password. Uh, so basically, same deal. What amazes me about this is that it's very unusual that an organization will have a problem like this and then turn around and fix it in three weeks. Like those two <laughs> things, like being wired up well enough to actually receive a report like this, turn it around, get it all sorted in three weeks, you know, is kind of incompatible with that problem being there in the first place. You <laughs> know? Know. It's, this is just such a strange, yeah, a strange story. All sorts of juxtaposition all over the place. Uh, and I guess good on Toyota. I remember they've had some experience lately with uh, being hacked. So yeah. maybe the response process is, you know, well-oiled these days. Weird vibes all around on this yes. one, man. And it's sort of like that thing where I look at it and no one's talking about the consent issue here and that makes me feel old <laughs> yes yeah yeah me too buddy me too <laughs> uh, well adam that is actually it for the week's news you know a bit of a shorter week this week uh, not a whole bunch happening just the usual you know constant screams emanating from ransomware victims you know uh the usual sort of stuff but uh, a pleasure to chat to you always my friend and we'll do it again next week yeah likewise pat i'll talk to you then 
That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. Now we're going to talk about what's happening in InfoSec in the wake of what they like to call changing economic circumstances. And uh, yeah, if you add up uh, all of the layoffs at big tech uh, in the USA over the last little while, I think I saw someone do the sums and it worked out to something like 200,000 people, which is a lot of people. Uh, But thankfully, you know, technology generally has had a talent shortage for the last little while. So for now, at least people seem to be landing on their feet. Uh, So what do we make of this whole situation? So big tech has certainly slashed a lot of jobs, but is InfoSec actually recession resistant? Kind of depends where you look. Some surveys show that, you know, enterprise security spending is booming and it went up substantially in 2022 as executives became more attuned to sort of cyber risks. And it would be a brave board at a major company that would slash and burn the InfoSec team in this kind of environment. But what about startups? Bond yields go up, venture capital goes away, and that's basically a law of physics. So startups are all having to extend their runways at the moment, and sadly, that means people letting go. Indeed, even this week's sponsor, Red Canary, which is a mature startup, just did a small round of layoffs. And they're not the only ones. At this point, all venture-funded startups are doing their sums on, on the runway they have left, so we can expect to see some further contraction there. And then there's the mid-sized companies. Now, according to our next guest, uh, Adam Mashinchi from Red Canary, some of those mid-sized companies are just wholesale booting their InfoSec teams because, you know, they're, quote, too expensive. Companies that may have used Red Canary as a backup in the past are now relying solely on them for monitoring and threat detection. But as you'll hear, you know, this is all just part of a big pendulum swinging. Here's Adam Mashinchi. There's one kind of subtle common thread that you can see between a lot of these if you if you squint at them, especially in the smaller organizations, where of the teams of people being let go, in many cases, the cybersecurity team is out the door, if not the first team that's out the door. Um, and that's kind of a weird thing as you start to piece together examples of that. And so, you know, we can only kind of squint and read, well, why is it that, you know, t- cybersecurity teams are some of the first to go? And it's got to have, it has to do with the cost of that staff and the requirements behind them. The fact that it's an incredibly competitive landscape and they're probably very hard to keep those folks depending. Um, and the fact that the tooling required that those folks need or maintain are also quite expensive. And obviously folks gain a lot from things like having an MDR provider that they, maybe they were using it as a backup or as a check of what their native team was doing. Well, now you just lean on that provider more because it is less expensive. I mean, that's the value proposition of it. MDR as a thing is that it's less expensive than having your own internal staff. And so it is counterintuitive, like why cybersecurity is, tends to be one of the things that goes. But then when you look at it from a cost-saving exercise, it's like, well, we had this team of people and they wanted all this, these sims set up and all these other tools and they were the only ones who knew how, knew how to maintain it. Well, let's just point that stuff at a third party and have them do it all for us, right? Yeah. And then I mean, obviously, obviously, you're still going to need some sort of security team, though, right? To like actually manage the relationship with the MDR provider. But I mean, you know, from what you were saying, you're like, oh, entire team out the window. I guess what you're talking about more is like the sock and seam team. Yeah, and I mean, really, it it all just has to do with trying to manage the complexity of what the cybersecurity environment looks like for an organization today. And who can manage that stuff in that reality and kind of the threats coming at a company uh, and who could do it 
for the least expensive price tag. You know, this is likely a pendulum swing in one direction, given the market forces that are at play here. Pretty much every company, if not every tech company on the planet, just came out of like the worst second half of a year from a financial standpoint that we have memory of, and we're like marching into a really rough. I mean, I mean, as for the as for the pen as for the pendulum swing, I can't imagine some guidance from the SEC coming out in a couple of years that says, "Geez, would you mind maybe not getting owned so much, please?" <laughs> well, and we're also seeing things now where there are executives inside of organizations and boards of directors being held like personally liable for cybersecurity decision making. See, that's the part where I think it's sort of recession resistant, right? Like you'd be brave cutting cutting the headcount of your infosec team. I mean, okay, for maybe alert monitoring, things like that, you know, you can move some of that to MDR. But you know, wholesale headcount reduction across infosec, you would have you would have to be brave. Exactly. And um and I think that that is where some of these things are really in the resistant against even the market forces where people say like, nope, we're just not going to do cybersecurity at all here anymore because if for no other reason, folks want to insulate themselves from liability and you need to have a person or a team to help you achieve that goal. You know, it's probably not a good idea to not have cybersecurity personnel on staff. I think that's uh, safe to say. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think, I think we can all kind of agree that that's probably a reasonable statement. Um, people are definitely able to lean on things like MDR in the modern landscape and are doing so because it's cost effective and it's a good job. And MDRs have a lot of benefits that a in-house security team does. If for no other reason that MDRs just have a much wider scope. Like if you're signed up with an MDR provider and your competitors are also signed up with an MDR provider, maybe they'll catch the Threat adversaries inside of your competitor yeah, first yeah, and yeah. protect you from them. Right? Logs, like, logs, just... logs in aggregate are powerful. They are. Yeah, they always have been. And so the value of MDR has not changed at all, but the value of retaining a cybersecurity staff has gotten trickier to justify with with given the market forces, right? Because it's like, well, if you were using your MDR as a supplement, but they're doing a pretty good job. Well, then maybe the people they were supplementing don't need to be doing as much yeah. or be there at all. And I think that's kind of the finger in the wind logic that a lot of these organizations have, it, even as a temporary cost saving. I don't think it's a great idea, but if you're standing around and you're like, well, are there duplicate functions here and the third party one is cheaper? Shrug emoji, right? Let me ask you this. How long do you think this this period of, of sort of economic adjustment in InfoSec is going to last? Because I, I, I just don't know, you know, and, and I, I like to think that I'm pretty good at being able to see the medium term, but I can't in this case. I just have no idea. What, what are your feelings, Adam? Yeah. And again, like I'm not a financial advisor. I have no special tea leaves or anything like that. I am not a day trader or anything of that ilk, but the prefaces aside, uh, this last year was rough. This upcoming year is also going to be rough. Uh, as much if I had to again figure in the wind, um, I think this this first half of this upcoming year is going to be a really difficult one for the companies at large, tech in, uh, in particular, um, mostly because people are still trying to figure out what their budgets need to be, and it's hard. It's really really hard uh, because there's that whole like if you sell a thing. And people are buying less things. Well, you have to adjust all of your, uh, you know, all of your metrics for that. And it's 
I would say that th we have a rough year inbound, just holistically as a global community. If this if I yeah. and and that you know right now we have a really strange uh, thing going on where the theoretically the unemployment line for tech workers is like hundreds of thousands of people deep, uh, and yet there seems to be a lot of optimism. It's like you know people are going to land on their feet, and there's plenty of work to go around, especially in cybersecurity land where those jobs are. Yeah, still I mean, I think if anything, I think if anything, we're just going to see like. Um you know, comp come down a bit, right? But I, I don't think these people are going to wind up on breadlines. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, and if I had to, and I'm going to put it on record here, right? Like what I think is going to happen is I think sometime in the middle of this year, we're going to see a bloodbath of the weaker startups, right? The ones who aren't slam dunks are going to get cooked. Um, that's that's just what I feel is going to happen. Um, the part that I'm really uncertain about is is when there's going to be a rebound. But you know, everyone can see everyone can see the bad stuff coming. I just don't know when it's going to get good again. You know? Yeah, and it's really difficult to read, especially the venture capital markets. And you hear things about like there's plenty of dry powder and all these other sorts of terms. But it's like, well, lies, all <laughs> lies. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all well and good to hear that from the people who are holding the money. But uh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it is tricky. Like, and and it doesn't matter who you are if you say if you type is now a good time to say found a startup like you're gonna get every result out of the sun right it's it's yeah. like the web md and financial advice for startup founders uh and it all just depends on the kind of thing they're uh they're trying to do and the kind of thing they're trying to breathe the market um but we're now it's, it's going to be interesting to me i i think I think you're correct. We're going to see a lot of the the weaker startups become very sad in in the first half of this year. Um, but see, I think I think more that's going to happen. I think that's going to more happen around the middle of this year because people are, you know, they they'll hang on, you know, and then 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 we might see a bit of a bloodbath. And I think it's going to last a little bit longer than people realize too. Yeah, but from my my curiosity is not which startups are going to start to become sad, which startups are going to be acquired instead of just silently failing or fading. To me, there could be an acquisition feeding frenzy that supplements this whole thing as well. So these people don't wind up out on the street necessarily, but they maybe have to sell their company for less than they were hoping for. Oh man, right? bottom bottom dollar acquisitions are already being negotiated as we speak, right? Yeah. Like they, they, they are, you know, and that's about keeping the team employed. You know, and I think you're right. We could see some of that. Some of these really cut price acquisitions just to keep the keep the lights on and keep everyone their job in in, in their jobs. You know, um, which is sad for the founders and their yeah. investors, but at least people get to keep their jobs. Yeah. Well, and and you know, when if you're an investor and you're saying, well, I I could either lose it all on this startup or I could kind of like break even with this bottom dollar acquisition price. What are you gonna, pay? you know? Yeah. Uh, and and the other. The other interesting aspect here is, you know, we've seen all these huge tech corporations have pretty substantial workforce reductions. Um, do they start to use some of that regained monetary value for acquisitions of other things that they can now get a bottom dollar, right? And these are all things we're just not going to know until 16 months from now, probably. But yeah. it is kind of an interesting... You know, especially for someone like you who like reads the, the tech tea leaves and has all these kinds of conversations with all these different parties, um, what will actually shake out of that and where, where these organizations prioritize the money they still have as they are extending runway and like there. Yeah, I think the landscape's going to look a little bit different in 12 months from now. And, you know, let's see where it lands. But Adam Mashinchi, thank you so much for joining us uh, on this episode of Risky Business to, to have that conversation with me. It was very interesting. Awesome. Thanks for having me. 
That was Adam Mashinshi from Red Canary there. Big thanks to him for being this week's sponsor guest and big thanks to Red Canary for being a Risky Business sponsor. And yeah, you know, where does this whole thing leave us? My gut feel is most enterprise teams are going to be okay, but we will see people losing jobs at startups and we're going to see some startups just disappear or be acquired for bottom dollar. And uh, yeah, Adam's right. Mid-sized companies are going to try to save money by outsourcing as much as they can uh, to MDR and, you know, other, other types of outsource providers but you know as I said in the interview I don't know when this is going to turn around but that seems to be the current trajectory uh, anyway that is it for this week's show I do hope you've enjoyed it I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Seriously Risky Business with Tom Uren uh, in the Risky Business News RSS feed but until then I've been Patrick Gray thanks for listening